<laughs> Barb and I um, always appreciate the fact that you give us uh, time to take a vacation, and uh, we've never uh, taken like four weeks in a row, but this year we did, and uh, largely because we just had confidence that you're in good hands with Pastor Dan, and uh, just <clears throat> felt good to be able to be relaxed. Uh, I was able to uh, read about a half a dozen books, <clears throat> one, of, uh, one of them which was on the Reformation, and uh, you might know that uh, this October is the 500th anniversary of the uh, Reformation. And so I thought on that Sunday, uh, October the 29th, if you have some Catholic friends, okay, that um, you've been trying to share the gospel with, uh, that'd be a great day to invite your Catholic friends to church. And we're going to take that day and just uh, focus a little bit on uh, what happened uh, 500 years ago and why it's still relevant today. And so uh, I would encourage you to pray about that and think about that. In addition to that, uh, Barb and I were able to visit three different churches while we were away, uh, even went to a Presbyterian church. Sorry for that. <clears throat> but uh, it was really good to just be uh, a worshiper, a parishioner, and not have any responsibility for anything that goes wrong on a Sunday morning. Uh, it's really kind of refreshing to just relax and kind of see what's going on, and uh, that was uh, really helpful. And in between all of that, we were just sitting on the beach, and I was just frying in my own fat, basically, <laughs> on the beach. Well, this morning, um, we come to our last message from the book of Daniel. All summer long, we've been looking at Daniel. We're in the context of uh, thinking about prophecy this year, because God first people live hope-filled lives. And so, um, we come to our last message from Daniel chapter 9 this morning. And uh, there are two parts to Daniel chapter 9, very easily falls into two parts. The first part is Daniel's prayer. It's a great prayer. In fact, it's been called the Lord's Prayer of the Old Testament. It's just a fabulous prayer. And uh, I remember in seminary, one of my professors told us, he said, if you ever want to make a congregation feel guilty, just ask them about their prayer life. And so this is our Sunday. <clears throat> But uh, this is a great model prayer for us to kind of compare our own prayer lives up against uh, this prayer of Daniel. And then the second part of this chapter is God's answer to Daniel's prayer, which is fabulous. Uh, probably the most significant uh, passage about prophecy in the whole Old Testament. Most of what the New Testament talks about in terms of prophecy is based on God's answer to Daniel's prayer uh, here in Daniel chapter 9. And so you know that God led his chosen people out of Egypt to Mount Sinai, uh, where God reiterated his promises to his people. And God entered into a covenant or a deal or a contract uh, with his people. He said, this is the, that's part of where the Ten Commandments are found. And God said, if you will do this, I will do that. And uh, all the people said, you know, we will, I will. And so um, God said, you know what, if you do what you say you're going to do, I will bless your life like you wouldn't believe. You'll have a fabulous life. But if you go back on your part of the deal, on your side of the contract or your side of the uh, covenant, uh, then bad things are going to happen. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28 is where one of the places where God talked about this. Here's what he said. He says, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the other nations of the earth, and all of these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. You do your part, and I will do mine. You will be, you'll have the socks blessed off your feet. Okay? However, verse 15, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments, and his statutes, and I command you today, then all of these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field, and so forth. Verse 36, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, and you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the people where the Lord will lead you away. 
Now, you know what happened, right? There's uh, years, there's cycles of the people rebelling against God and, and God disciplining his children, Israel. And there's these cycles that just go on and on and on. And finally, uh, God has enough. And uh, he sends the prophet Jeremiah uh, to the nation of Israel to say, you know what? It's over. That's it. I've had it. Uh, I'm done. And um, if you don't repent, if you don't change, your whole nation is going to be destroyed. And that's what happened. Israel was overtaken, the northern part by the Assyrians and the last part uh, by the Babylonians. And that's where we meet Daniel. He's like 14 or 15 years old, and he becomes a refugee. He becomes, uh, uh, you know, uh, somebody who's deported to Babylon along with another group of Jewish people. Now, by chapter 9, Daniel is 80-plus years old. So Daniel has been living in captivity in Babylon for either 68 or 69 years, depending on how you do the math. And... Um, the nation of Babylon has just been overcome by the Medes and the Persians. Okay, so Daniel's whole life in chapter 9 is in turmoil. A whole new administration has just come in. Daniel's position is uncertain. What's going to happen to the Jewish population that's there in Babylon is uncertain. Everything's in turmoil and chaos and so forth. And, and uh, because this, the Medes and the Persians have just defeated uh, the Babylonians. The year is about 539 B.C., about 500 years uh, before G Jesus. And so um, Daniel's whole world is in upheaval. And so what does Daniel do? What do you do when your whole world comes unglued and everything is uncertain? Well, Daniel turned to the scriptures. And so in chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, we find Daniel reading the Old Testament, reading his Bible. And he discovers something while he's reading the Bible that he applies directly to his life. And that sets up this prayer uh, uh, in Daniel chapter 9. And so let me just read the first couple of verses. In the first year of Darius, the son of Asherharis, uh, by descent a Mede, the Medes and the Persians have just taken over, uh, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived... In the books, the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So here's Daniel reading Jeremiah, and uh, he comes to discover that God said this desolation of Jerusalem was destroyed when the Babylonians came in. The temple was destroyed. The people were deported. It's going to last 70 years. And so um, it's kind of exciting when you um, look at this in uh, Jeremiah. If you go back to Jeremiah chapter um, 25, uh, this might be where Daniel was reading. Jeremiah 25 verse um, 11. Okay. Um, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations, the north and the south of Israel, shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So here's Daniel. He's been in captivity 68, 69 years. He reads his Bible, and all of a sudden he realizes, my goodness, this is almost up. Maybe next year we can get out of here and go back home and go back to Israel. Now he's 80 years old, 80 plus, probably 82 and, uh, and then after 70 years are completed, verse 12, um, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And that's just what happened. The Medes and the Persians came in and they got rid of the Babylonians. And so all of a sudden Daniel's like, wow, this is pretty contemporary. This was written 70 years ago, prophetic, Right? when God revealed it to Jeremiah, but here he's reading it, and uh, all of a sudden he's getting excited. He keeps reading, and in Jeremiah chapter 29, uh, he's uh, reaffirmed again. Verse 10 says this, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And look, these are the verses that follow that. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, uh, to give you a future and a hope. 
And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you, and you will seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I'll be found by you. Those are very familiar verses to many people, right? They're life verses for some folks. Uh, But they're addressed to Israel in this context. And so Daniel realizes that these uh, 70 years are almost up. And so what does he do? He turns to prayer. He begins to talk to God. And this is where we uh, find his prayer. And um, when he turns to God in the third verse, uh, you have to remember he's talking about the nation of Israel. And so he says in verse 3, Then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Now, I want to suggest to you that, you know, not all praying is like this, but Daniel recognized this is a significant occasion. And so he prepares himself to pray. He doesn't just rush into the Lord's presence and kind of off the cuff, but he prepares himself uh, to pray. Um, And he wants to listen to what God has to say. Now, you remember, Daniel is in the habit of praying three times a day. That's what got him into the lion's den, remember? And so he's used to praying. But how do you know how to pray until you listen to what God has to say? And all of a sudden, Daniel realizes, I haven't been listening. It's 70 years. The 70 years almost up. I need to talk to God about what's going to happen next. And, uh, and so one way that I think we can listen to God is to pray and then share with the Lord what's on our mind and then open up the scriptures and read it until we hear God speak to us. Have you ever had that experience? You just know that you're reading scripture, but some verse jumps out and you know that God has like got a, an accent on that verse for you at that point in time. And it's one of the ways to listen to God. Just tell him what's on your mind. And then open the scriptures and allow him to speak to you and then do what he says. You know, one of the uh, frustrating things is that if people listen to sermons and, uh, you know, and go to Bible studies and so forth, and they agree with what's said and they say, oh, good sermon, but you never apply it to yourself personally. You never change. You never transform your life. You never become more God first, as we like to talk about it. And so every week, you know, in case you haven't noticed, I prepare these connection questions. And they're designed so that you can take it home and think about how can I apply this, what I heard this morning, you know, to my life. And so I I just want to reiterate the first connection question today is ask God to improve your prayer life. Anybody here who says, I don't need any improvement on my prayer life, (laughs) right? Uh, We all, you know, struggle with prayer. And, uh... Ask God to improve your prayer life. And then study Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9, listening for God to speak to you about one way you could improve your praying. In other words, take this and allow it to transform or change your everyday living uh, to become a little bit more uh, of a God-first person. And so that's one way of listening to God. But in Daniel's day, you know, who's listening? This is Daniel, and he's finally reading Jeremiah to listen, and all of a sudden he realizes that these 70 years are almost up, and so he says, I'm going to pray for God's will to be done here. And uh, understanding prophecy will do that for you. When you understand prophecy, you sort of see what's going on behind the scenes of the headlines. And you kind of can see that God is in control and that things are moving in a direction, and you can pray in line with what God is doing. And uh, I believe that prophecy, one of the great benefits of studying prophecy in the future, you know, more than 25% of the Bible was prophetic when it was written. More than 25%. So I'm sure that God put it there for a reason. And and when we study it, we can kind of see what's going on, and uh, it helps us. So Daniel prepares for praying. First of all, by fasting. Fasting. Now, fasting, the idea of fasting is um, going without something so that you can focus on God. And normally we associate it with food, you know, and going without a meal uh, uh, for a while or meals uh, in order that we can focus on God. But I would suggest to you that you can fast 
anything. Uh, in our day and age, I would say to you, we should probably fast cell phoning. <laughs> should just shut the thing off for a while and say, you know what, everybody else can wait. I'm going to go talk to God. I'm going to fast from people, from cell phones, from advertisers, whatever, so that I can focus on God. It's one of the ways of being God first or prioritizing God. Um, we could fast entertainment. I could say no to going to a movie. I, I don't know how many people, and I say, you know, have you prayed about that? Well, you know, I don't have time. Well, why is that? Well, I just got back from the movies. Well, you know, you could fast entertainment. You could actually shut the TV off for an hour and give yourself an hour with God to talk to him and to listen to him. How easily he's forgotten. How easily he's ignored. How easily he's put aside. You could actually fast from uh, shopping. <laughs> I've been on vacation. You could actually sh- fast from shopping. You could actually fast from um, business. Some of our business, you know, takes 24-7 to kind of keep going. But the idea of fasting is to set aside something so that you can focus and concentrate on your relationship with God. And fasting, it helps me to to focus on heavenly things when I deliberately set aside earthly things. That's the idea of fasting. I'm just going to set aside something earthly so that I can focus more on what's heavenly. The second thing that uh, Daniel does to prepare himself to prayer is he puts on sackcloth. Now, I don't know. Every time I hear the word sackcloth, I think of a burlap bag, just because it's a sack, I guess, you know? And um, it would be an itchy thing to wear, right? Cut a hole in the top, a sack, and uh, put it on. But um, I think Daniel is uh, expressing humility before God. He's saying, I don't come before you with anything. I come before you totally dependent upon you and in humbleness. And so he, he wears sackcloth. It's the poorest people's clothes, symbolizing his desperation. God, we need you. You know, uh, there's no pride in prayer. There's no self-reliance. There's no defense. There's no indifference. It's just I, I need you. And if you don't come through here, if we're stuck for 69 years in captivity... Uh, being slaves, and you said the 70th year you're going to, if you don't do it, what you said, we're not going to be able to survive. God's being faithful to his word is the only hope we have. And then the third thing he does is he puts on ashes. He smears his face with ashes. And um, ashes uh, usually are a symbol of shame before God. Now, this is interesting because Daniel is a very successful person. Daniel shot to the top of four government administrations. Daniel saved the day four different times over the course of his lifetime, uh, saved the whole nation from uh, God's judgment. Uh, He's a very successful person. Um, He's um, a Hall of Fame kind of guy. He's honored by kings. He's the recipient of miracles by God. He's blessed with a supernatural wisdom about dreams. He's like the ultimate shrink he can interpret dreams you know and uh he's a great prophet before the people but before god he's in ashes and sackcloth and fasting this big government official because he realizes what's happening here when i pray i'm going into the very presence of god and you know another thing about this prayer when you read the whole thing you realize that daniel identifies with his people it's not just him It's like my people, Israel, we before God. You ever pray like this, you know? Hey, my church, my church, all of us before God, we have these shortcomings, we have these weaknesses, we have these failures, we have this, you know, we need to come before you. And so uh, Daniel goes, and it's it's all we and us and, and so forth. You know, humility matters to God. Pride is a prayer killer. And uh, we live in Fairfield County. And I'm as sick as everybody else. We can do it ourselves. And we think we don't have to depend upon God. And we've got extra money. And we've got, you know, all the luxuries and and all of that, you know. In fact, it was kind of interesting to me. uh, Texas, you know, this uh, terrible 
uh, storm with all the flooding and everything. And all of a sudden, our president says, we need to have a national day of prayer. Now. Today. Because now we have problems that we can't solve. Uh, before we think we could just solve all our problems, he's got the answer to every problem kind of thing, you know. But no, Daniel is going to plead with God. Pride somehow makes us think that God owes us something. If you've ever prayed and gotten mad at God because he hasn't answered your prayer the way you want him to, that's an issue of pride usually, right? Pride says, well, I've been such a good person, and I've done all these things right, and I've served on this committee, and I've gone to church, and I've tithed, and I've done this, and can't you just pull this off for me? As if God owes us something. Well, Daniel, I think, was compelled to pray because of the problems that he was facing in his world and also because of the promise that he found in God's word. And, you know, God wants us to pray. Real faith, always, real faith, always turns into action of some sort. Faith without works, the Bible says, is dead. Real faith always turns into action. And so Daniel, who believes God and reads God's word and discovers this, uh, prays. And then uh, verse 4, the next verse. Um, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. The first thing I notice about uh, what Daniel says here is that um, he prays to God. And notice what he says here. He says, um, I pray to the Lord my God. Prayer is personal. I pray to the Lord my God, Elohim. I pray to the Lord, Adonai. Um, it, it, it doesn't say I prayed to Mary. It doesn't say I prayed to Allah. It doesn't say I prayed to Mother Nature. I prayed to the God of Israel, the one true God, the creator God, Jehovah God. I prayed to the Father of Jesus. And it's important because, you know, even with this flood down in Texas, it's like, hey, guess what? We're all going to hold hands. We're all going to be good people. And we're all going to be kind. And it really doesn't matter whether you're a Christian, a Jew, a Muslim, or whatever. We're all in this together. And let's just, you know, uh, forget about these distinctions. And we need to be careful. Who is it that we're praying to? We need to know him before we can uh, pray to him. And not only that, but you'll notice that uh, before Daniel makes any requests or anything, he praises God for how great he is. You know, and when we get into this, Daniel's pretty upset because, you know, the whole uh, surroundings around him are kind of ignoring God and uh, not really paying much attention to what's going on. But look what he says. Oh, Lord, the great and awesome God. Wouldn't you love it if our world would recognize how great and how awesome God really is? I mean, we come here in our little huddle and we sing about it, and we're happy about it, and that's great. But the world we live in, God is less and less awesome and less and less significant. Would you agree? Isn't that what's happening? And does it get to you? Does it bug you? Do you ever pray about it? God, I'm so sorry. But the people I hang with, they don't even know that you exist. And they don't care. And they don't realize how they need you. And they don't realize what you've done for them and so forth. Oh, Lord, great and awesome God. Look, who keeps covenants, who keeps promises. This is a God you can depend upon. God has never promised anything and not delivered. Never. You know, who keeps promises, keeps covenant. And steadfast in his love. I don't care how bad you mess up, God loves you. God loves you. He's steadfast. And so here's Daniel. He's approaching God. And he's like, you're the God I can trust. You're the God who's steadfast. You're the God who will love us in spite of all of our sins. You're the God whom it's safe to confess to because of your steadfast love. And he sort of sets up who this God is that he's praying to, and then he gets around to confession. If we're ever going to get right with God, we start with confession, recognizing who he is, you know? And he says, look, we, there it is again, we, we have sinned. Now, Daniel was the, you know, outstanding, upstanding guy, but
But he says, we have sinned. We have done wrong. We have acted wickedly. We have rebelled. We have turned aside from your commandments and rules. Look what's involved in sin. Look at all those adjectives there. We have sinned. What does that mean? Well, it means we've done wrong. It means we've messed up, you know. We've acted wickedly. We've rebelled. You know, uh, we've turned aside. When's the last time you read the Ten Commandments? We've turned aside from your commandments. You know, we've pulled them out of our courtrooms. We've taken them out of our schools. We've turned aside from your commandments. You know, here's the thing. God takes sin seriously. I mean, you're going to see here the Jewish people. You know, the New Testament says that God gave us the Jewish people as an example for us to understand what he's all about. And uh, here's Daniel, and, and here's, like, I think the bottom line of all sin, verse 6. He says, we have not listened. <laughs> we have not listened. We've not listened. We don't want to know what you have to say. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. We have just not listened. Our God is a speaking God. He's talking all the time. He's not silent. He's not hiding. He's a speaking God. He's, he's created the universe, and through the creation, he speaks. He's given his spirit into the world, and through his spirit, he speaks our consciences. And he's given us his word, and through his word, he speaks. He's a, he's a speaking God. And he expects to be listened to. But here's Daniel saying, you know what our problem is? We have not listened. Um, uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah uh, chapter 7. Let me see. Jeremiah chapter 7, God talks about this. And uh, look what he says here in Jeremiah chapter 7, um, verse 23. Um, but this command I gave them, obey my voice and I'll be your God and, and you'll be my people and walk in the way that I command you that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their uh, ear, but walked in their own counsel and in the stubbornness of their own evil hearts, and they went backwards, not forwards. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but they stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. God is like, I've been speaking since you got out of Egypt, but you don't listen. You refuse to listen. And, um, you know, Jeremiah, again, is the uh, prophet who said all of this. Uh, again, if we uh, go to, like, Proverbs, um, Proverbs chapter 28 and uh, verse 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. If we don't listen to God about what he says about what's right and wrong and we don't confess and we don't agree with him about uh, our sins and so forth, uh, we're not going to prosper. Some people are like, you know what? I'm stuck in a rut. I'm in the same place I was five years ago. I can't seem to get out of it. I don't know what's wrong. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them uh, will obtain mercy. Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 3. Uh, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The love of God never stops. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and therefore I will hope in him. God first people live hope-filled lives because of the way that God actually is. He's full of mercy. He forgives. He's slow to anger. And, uh, but we refuse to listen. And I want to say it's still a major problem today. Over 25% of the Bible is prophetic, yet how many people, even Christians, pay any attention to what God says is in our future in order to understand what's going on today? Most of our world leaders today are still trying to divide the land of Israel. Joel chapter 3 uh, says that the battle of Armageddon will happen when all the nations will be gathered together together. 
uh, and part of the reason for God decimating the nations is because they keep insisting on dividing the land that God gave to his people. Joel chapter 3, you can read it for yourself. Anyway, so Daniel confesses, and we have not listened. And then uh, he goes on in verse 7, in this prayer, talking to God. He says, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all of Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. He's saying, God, you're right, we're wrong. You're always right. You're totally righteous. God is never wrong. He is always right. You are righteous. And Daniel's acknowledged, we're just receiving what we deserve. How treacherous we've been against you. Everything that we have has come from your hand, and we've uh, turned against you. We've, uh, treacherous. Um, to us, O Lord, verse 8, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. You're right. We're dependent upon you. If you're not going to forgive us, if you're not going to deliver us from this bondage that we're in here to the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians, it's just not going to happen because this is what we deserve. And it seems like in Daniel's day, most of the Jewish people just accepted that and said, well, we'll just live below our privileged position as the children of God as the chosen people of God, and we'll just accept it. But Daniel, having read the scriptures, says, no, uh, we can get out of this. And so, uh, again, um, Numbers 23 talks about how God is. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Uh, has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? So Daniel latches on to the fact that what God says he means and what God says he'll do, he does. And Daniel begins to pray and ask God uh, to deliver the people. And I'm just going to read through verses 9 down to 13 here. It's, this is his prayer. Notice how many times it's we and us and our. 41 times in this prayer Daniel uses those kind of pronouns. Okay? Um, verse 9. Uh, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us this great calamity for under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem ever before. And look at this, verse 13. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us and yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God. We've been sitting here for 69 years and we're still not giving in and turning to God and asking for help, is what he's saying. Daniel's like, forgive us, you know. In fact, he gets to his request in um, verse 16. Uh, o Lord, he finally says in verse 16, right? O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem. This is the request part of the prayer. There's the adoration, there's the confession, and now there's the, what we normally call the supplication or the request, the desire. Lord, according to all of your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Daniel's upset because the name of God is being profaned all around us. And they're using Israel, they're using Jerusalem, they're using the people, the Jewish people, as their example. These are the chosen people of God. It reminds me of Tevye and Fiddler on the Roof. You remember? He says, so we're the chosen people, and all these terrible things are happening to us. Couldn't you choose somebody else? You know? God chose the people to be an example for us and for our benefit, according to Paul in Corinthians. And uh, he's really upset here because, you know, uh, the people, uh, Jerusalem has become a byword and still to this day. What do you think of when you hear the word Jerusalem? 
or the Jewish people? Really, don't you just think trouble? The whole world's fighting over those people. You know, why is that? And, uh, you know, Daniel was concerned about that. Uh, your righteous ask, your anger, your wrath, please turn away from the city of Jerusalem, your holy hill, it's your city. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all the people who are around us. The surrounding nations are making fun of God based on the claims of the Jewish people being God's people. You ever feel like that about Christians? You ever have a, a Christian go rogue, you know, and it gets on the TV and you're like embarrassed to death? And all the people around you are like, oh, you Christians, look at that. You think you're better than everybody else? No, we don't think we're better. We think we're forgiven. But that's how Daniel feels, and that's what was happening and still going on today. And now, therefore, oh, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O oh Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Now he's talking about the temple where the Jewish people and God met, where God existed on earth, and, uh, and he wants uh, God to restore, you know, not just the city, but the sanctuary, which is now desolate, which was destroyed by the Babylonians. And um, not only that, but notice he wants his face, he wants God's face to shine on the people and on the temple and on the city of Jerusalem again. The face of God is a symbol of God's presence. God is the source of their light and their life. Uh, he's the source of their love. And uh, they sense that down there in Babylon, God's face is not shining on them. And they miss his presence, and it's associated with the sanctuary and the people of God. And so he goes on in verse 18, Oh, my God, incline your ear to hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that's called by your name. Now listen to this. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness. We're not coming before you and saying, you know what? We deserve to have you answer our prayers. We're good people. We're your chosen people. We've done all this. You know, we've put in our time and so forth. No, but because of your great mercy, we dare to come before you because you're a God of grace. You're a God of great mercy. You're a God of steadfast love. Um, O oh Lord, verse 19, hear, O oh Lord, forgive, O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. God, do this for your own reputation. You know, act in some way so that the world can understand that you are the God of the universe. You are the one true God. You ever pray like that? You ever pray and say, God, you know, your reputation here is at stake. Please do something, you know, that will rescue your uh, reputation with the nations. Now, here's, this is really cool. Before Daniel gets to say amen, okay, God sends the answer. He doesn't even get to say amen. Look at this, verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, Daniel's like, right in the middle of my prayer, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, an angel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, which is in chapter 8, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He's not even done with his prayer yet, right? Doesn't even say amen. And bam, God's got the answer. And here's Gabriel, okay? And uh, verse 22, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel... I have come out to give you insight and understanding. Now, if you knew about chapter 7 and chapter 8, uh, Daniel was given some visions, and he had an initial explanation and understanding, but uh, he needed more to understand what was really going on. Chapter 7, the end of chapter 7 and chapter 8, is about the Antichrist, right? And uh, what's going to happen uh, towards the end of time. And... Uh, Gabriel comes to explain to Daniel to give him insight and understanding. The same insight and understanding that's available to us today when it comes to prophetic issues. And um, look what he says. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. God loved Daniel. Wouldn't you like God to write that on your tombstone? Here lies somebody greatly loved by God. You are greatly loved, the angel tells uh, Daniel. And so then he says, therefore, consider, 
the word and understand the vision. Consider what God says and understand uh, what God has revealed to you um, in the vision. Now, uh, you're going to have to stay with me here. Um, You have to think here because I would tell you that these four verses are the single most important prophetic verses in the entire Old Testament. And most of what's written about prophecy and future in the New Testament is based on these four verses. And so, but they're a little bit confusing. And so notice what the angel says. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people. Seventy weeks. Seventy sevens. Uh, The word for week and the word for seven in Hebrew is the same. Seventy sevens is 490 years. Daniel, you thought 70 years and we would all be back in Israel and be happy and be celebrating again. But I'm here to tell you a correct understanding is that there will be 70 times 7 or 490 more years that your people are going to be disciplined for their sins. I'm telling you, God takes sin very seriously. And when you understand all of this, you say to yourself, I am so thankful for Jesus going to the cross and getting rid of my sin. I mean, it just... It explodes. It's like, wow. I don't know if you've ever been to Israel. or uh, In Israel, there's uh, the uh, Holocaust Museum. And you think of what the Jewish people have gone through. You walk through that museum. It can never be the same. There's no people who have suffered like the Jewish people. And God says it's because of their sins. And their sins are no worse than your sins and mine. And you begin to appreciate the fact that Jesus went to the cross and bore our sins like never before. And that's what's going on here. And so uh, God says to Daniel through the angel, you know, 70 weeks or 70 times 7, 490 more years before the Jewish people are going to be reconciled and forgiven. And so it's important to understand that and to do the math. And your holy city, to finish the transgression, there's six things That's going to happen in these 490 years. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression. That's number one. To put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Six things that are going to happen before the Jewish people are finished with this uh, discipline. First of all, transgressions are going to stop. A transgression is every time God says, thou shalt not, and you go ahead and do it, thou shalt not lie, and you lie, every time that happens, that's a transgression. It's a trespass, right? It's, it's going against what God said not to do. And God says, when these 490 years is over, nobody's going to be doing that anymore. Hallelujah, Right? He'll put an end to transgression. The second thing that's going to happen is put an end to sin. Sin is when God says, thou shalt, and we say, no way, I'm not doing it. Right? First one is God says, thou shalt not, and we go ahead and do it. The second one is God says, thou shalt, love your neighbor. No, I can't stand the guy. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. God says, forgive, like I've forgiven you. No, they don't deserve it. Well, neither do you. You see, and so every time we refuse to do what God says thou shalt, that's a sin. And by the end of that 490 years, those sins will stop. Nobody will be doing that anymore. What a great way to live. Can you imagine living where there's no transgressions and no sins? The third thing that's going to happen in these 490 years um, is there'll be an atonement for iniquity. Iniquity is a word for wickedness. There'll be a makeup. There'll be an atonement. There'll be a, a reconciliation for all the offenses. There'll be a, a healing between God and people, an atonement. And um, it will happen for all evil. It's, it's about making amends. Now, Christians, we understand that's what happened on the cross. Jesus made amends. He reconciled us back to God. He covered our sins. He washed them away with his blood. 
But the Jewish people that Daniel's praying about here hardened their hearts against Christ and refused to listen and refused to take advantage of his sacrifice on the cross. And so this condition still exists. They will accept Jesus at the end. Paul says in Romans chapter 11, all Israel will be saved. And they will come to Christ at the end. The fourth thing uh, that's going to happen in these 490 years is there's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. Everybody will do everything right. The kingdom of God will overtake the kingdom of this world. When you go on to read the rest of the Bible, it starts with a thousand-year reign of Jesus on this earth. It's called the millennial reign of Christ, right? It's in Revelation. It talks about that. And then it will go on forever in a place called heaven. The fifth thing that um, uh, God says is going to happen in these 490 years is uh, to seal both vision and prophet. In other words, everything God revealed through his prophets... All the visions will be done. Everything will come to an end. Everything that God promised. There's a verse in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that says, all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. I love that verse, right? Everything that God said will happen. All the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. And so righteousness will prevail. And then the last thing um, um, that is going to happen, the sixth Thing that is listed there, uh, there's going to be an anointing of a most holy place. Now, the word place is a, a question mark. Uh, some people think it's an anointing uh, of Jerusalem, right? And uh, some people think it's uh, not a place, but it's anointing of Jesus. The word Messiah means anointing. And uh, I think it means both. I think both uh, Jerusalem and Jesus uh, will be anointed. People who think it's about Jesus think you know, of that passage that says there's coming a day when every single knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he will be anointed by the world's population. Okay, so all of that's going to happen in the next 490 years. However, this 490 years that God talks about here in this prophecy has got three parts to it. There are three different parts to the 490 years, okay? And so these six things are going to happen, but look at what verse 25 says. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, okay? And then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in troubled times. And then after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. So there's two periods that are talked about here. It's 490 years. There's seven sevens or 49 years to rebuild Jerusalem. There's two things that he talks about. One is the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And the second is the coming of a prince, an anointed one or the coming of Jesus. And so you have here a, a really fascinating uh, passage of Scripture that talks about these seven weeks, or 49 years, and then 62 weeks, or 434 years. And if you add those two together, seven and 62 is how many? All right. There's one seven-year period that's not accounted for in this passage called the 70th week of Daniel, and we are living right now between the 69th and the 70th week of Daniel, which hasn't started yet. God's got like a stopwatch, and, and there's going to be seven years, and it's going to stop, and there's going to be 62 years, and it's going to stop, and, uh, and then it's going to start again, and, and it's in this passage as to when that's going to be. And so in the year, and this is interesting, right? In the, in the year 445, a decree went out by the king of Persia. You can read about it in Ezra and Nehemiah for the city to be rebuilt, for Jerusalem to be rebuilt. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, great passages of scripture, kind of fun to read. But eventually the temple is rebuilt and it's rededicated. There's a huge party uh, and uh, things are back and things are moving. But it took 49 years, seven sevens. 49 years to rebuild uh, Jerusalem and the temple. And uh, when 
and, and then the Messiah is going to come, 62 sevens, or 434 years later. And um, if you take uh, that date, uh, 445, and we know the month and so forth, uh, this date for the first coming of Jesus is established. Um, he would come 483 years after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. So when you use the date of that decree and you use the Jewish calendar and you take this prophecy literally and you do the math, it actually comes out to the exact day of Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem and was declared king. I mean, it blows my mind to do this. The exact day. There's a guy by the name of... um, Sir Robert Anderson, who was an English lawyer who was the head of Scotland Yard, who investigated this and wrote a book that's uh, pretty acclaimed and really affirmed by uh, a lot of teachers who teach prophecy and so forth. And uh, he did the math, and he, he took that date, and he traced it, and it went exactly to the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And if you go to Luke chapter 19, where we have that Palm Sunday account, Jesus talks, and listen to what Jesus said. He said when he, uh, Luke says, when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept. Remember this? He cries over the city. Why are you crying, Jesus? Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. He's talking to the Jewish people. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because, why? Why is this going to happen? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. I put it in the Bible I had Daniel, I sent the angel to Daniel to lay it out so that you could know the exact time of the visitation of the anointed one, the prince of God, Jesus, and you didn't pay any attention. And so he came and went. And so more misery for you. And so for six, between the 69th you know, uh, week, right, the 69th and the 70th, there's been almost... 2,000 years now. From the time Jesus rode into Jerusalem, more than 2,000 years till today. And that seventh week, that last seven years, you know, has not started yet. And so it's, it's just so interesting. And when you read Daniel and you keep reading, you'll notice what he says. Uh, know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. And then for 62 weeks, the city will be built again with squares and a moat, but in troubled times. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off, crucified, and have nothing amongst the Jewish people. So those six things that God promised, the end of sin, the end of transgression, the kingdom of God, all of those things that God said would happen, have not happened yet. Because we're living in a gap between the 69th and the 70th or the last week. And so when we get to the New Testament, the focus is on these last seven years. And Jesus is crucified. He's cut off. The Jewish people won't believe him. So there's nothing. There's no Jewish kingdom. There's no restored. You know, uh, remember when Jesus said these people are going to come against you and they're going to destroy everything? 70 AD, you remember the Romans came and they destroyed uh, Jerusalem again and... uh, Uh, Estimates are that up to 5 million Jewish people were killed at that time. Um, But it's very interesting because, again, if you read this carefully, uh, the next verse in verse 26 says, the next part of the verse says, and the people of the prince who is to come. This is the second prince. This is the Antichrist. This is the prince that was talked about in chapter 8 that Daniel had this vision about. Uh, when the Antichrist come, the, um, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and sanctuary. Most everybody believes this happened in 70 AD when the Romans came and destroyed. And so the, the, the people of the prince who is to come, most people think the Antichrist then will come from the old Roman Empire or Western Europe. 
And everybody's looking for that. However, if you look into this, what's most fascinating is that uh, Jerusalem was way out on the eastern end of the Roman Empire. And when the Roman governor, Titus, came and took over Jerusalem back there in 70 AD, most of the soldiers were mercenaries hired from Syria, from the Arab world, from the Middle East. And there's a swing and a shift in thought today that perhaps the Antichrist will most likely arise from the Middle East, not from Europe. And uh, for years, you know, it's held that position based on this passage of Scripture because it was the Romans. Yes, but the Romans hired mercenaries. The people who actually did the fighting and killed the Jewish people were Arabs. Now, this is long before, you know, Islam ever got going. But they were Arab people. And so uh, when you realize that, you know, it's an important shift that I think is going on in the thinking about uh, where this Antichrist will actually uh, come from. And he shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. That might be a reference to uh, what's in Revelation chapter 12. And to the end, there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. The Jewish people are always in the middle of some kind of war. To the end. And it's still going on today. Okay? And then the last verse here, I think, refers to that last seven-year period. And he shall make, this Antichrist, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. This seven-year period of time will kick off when somebody, some Antichrist, whoever that is, you know, makes a deal with Israel to protect it for seven years. Right? And everybody's kind of looking like, what's going to happen there? And, uh, <clears throat> and then... Look what will happen. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to the sacrifice and the offering. This person who makes this covenant or deal with the nation of Israel to protect it at exactly to the day, half of the seven-year period, turns against them and demands to be worshipped as God himself. All right? And I could show you, if we had time, uh, from the scriptures, uh, you know, how this was uh, prophesied in the past and how the New Testament speaks about this over and over. Jesus calls it the abomination of desolation. Like this is the ultimate thing that's going to happen is when this Antichrist, empowered by uh, Satan, uh, will set himself up as God and defy uh, the covenant that he made exactly three and a half years in and all the things that uh, accompany that whole thing. But I hope that you just get a sense of two things this morning. One, God really hates sin. God is so for us. He made us. He loves us. He's got a place for us in eternity. And he sacrificed his son to make atonement so that we could be reconciled and live with him. Don't take sin lightly. When you think about the Jewish people who God says are there for our benefit to understand what he's really like, understand that God intends for us to listen to him and to glorify him. And then second, please don't ignore prophecy that God is wanting us to understand and giving us in his word. And uh, yes, it's somewhat hard to understand. Barb said to me this morning, she said, so how's the message today? And I said, well, the first part is easy, talking about prayer. The second part, trying to explain 70 times 7 and 490 years and this and that, it's going to be a challenge. So I hope you could track with me. And if not, go back and study it yourself. It's worth the time. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, you're an awesome God. You really are a great God. You're way more than we give you credit for. And Father, we know how much you hate sin when we study Daniel's prayer and we look at the Jewish people and we realize how you chose them to bless them and you chose them to represent you, but when they rebelled and when they refused to listen, Father, everything comes unglued. And all of the problems that are in the world today uh, can be traced back to this rebellion in the Garden of Eden against you. And Father, we still live with that, with that nature that we inherited from Adam and Eve. And we know, all of us, we can pray Daniel's prayer with him because we too have sinned. We too have rebelled. We too have not listened carefully to what you want to tell us. And so we too ask for your forgiveness. And we thank you that we're assured of it through Jesus. And Father, we realize that the Jewish people are still being disciplined. They still haven't found Messiah as a nation. And we know that you have these last seven years, Father, in which many things will unfold. 
And I pray you'll make us alert. Don't make us fanatics. We don't want to be fanatics, but we do want to be informed. We want to be like Daniel, Father. We want to be informed and we want to understand. And we want to be able to set our lives in a context of your eternal truth. And so help us to learn from Daniel, Father, how to pray and how to pay attention to what you say to us in your word. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.